You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Good morning. It's, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. I've been at CA Church now for a whole, I think, seven weeks, and this is my second time here with you at Town Center, so that's great. <laughs> So how many of you followed Prince Charles' visit to Canada this week? I don't know if anyone did, but I'm in a family of royal watchers. And so just like you might follow your favorite soccer player, well, they follow the royals, their visits, their stats. And although I don't join them in this, I do have a record of getting the closest peek at the royals. So it was 1971 in Cranbrook. I was a brownie. I don't know if you know what brownies are. They're little girls wearing brown things and earning badges. And so the brownies got to the front row seat as the queen came to our city. So we went to Fort Steele, and then we were given the instructions. How do we properly greet Prince, Prince Char... Oh, no, it was Prince um, Philip, the queen, and Princess Anne. What do we say? What, are, what is the protocol? And then we waited in anticipation for them to arrive. The event began, we cheered the queen as she walked so close by. And she was so close that one uh, very assertive brownie asked Princess Anne for her autograph, to which she replied, my mommy doesn't let me give autographs. <laughs> I think she was 21 at that time, but you can understand uh, her mom was in charge. So at seven, I didn't know that this would be a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but it was a, an exciting time. It was so energizing to be in this royal parade. So this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at Jesus' royal parade and its significance. We're going to be reading from Mark 11, and we're going to read two different texts. The first is Jesus' royal parade, and the second is his entry into the temple. So if you stand with me as we read our passage together, we're going to start uh, with just the royal entry. So now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and I will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, and it was as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Please be seated. So I'm just going to open in prayer. God, this morning as we come to your word, we trust that your spirit is at work, that you will speak to us, that you will speak to us of how you want us to respond. So the story begins with Jesus just a few kilometers from Jerusalem in Bethpage, and it's Passover. This is one of the most important times in the Jewish religious calendar, the time when the Jewish people remember 
that God freed them from slavery in Egypt. And up until this point, Jesus has kept a very low profile. He's hidden his identity from the crowds. But now is the time for him, where he's ready to unveil who he really is. And he knows how he's going to do this. And he carefully organizes a grand entrance into Jerusalem. So scholars would call what Jesus did an enacted parable. Most of you know about spoken parables. In Mark, there was one, the sower and the seed, in Mark 4. But in enacted parables, uh, you do what you're trying to explore, explain. So think of when Jesus walked on the water. He was trying to demonstrate that he had power over creation. And in this enacted parable in Mark 11, Jesus is communicating something about himself using specific royal symbols. So first he chooses to ride on a colt. And we don't know if he planned ahead with the owner to take the colt or if he was taking advantage of a royal system that gave them prerogative to commandeer other people's things. And so it's kind of like if you're watching a movie, you know, and it's a police show and the police crashes his car and he's chasing someone and he pulls out his badge and he takes someone else's car and gets in. That's the same kind of idea likely that Jesus was doing here. I'm king. Let me use your colt. And we know from other Gospels that it is the colt of a donkey, not the colt of a horse. And much has been made about Jesus' humility in riding on a donkey, and this was a humble choice. But in the ancient Near East, kings rode on donkeys to demonstrate that they were coming in peace. If they came on a charger or on a chariot, they were coming for war. But a donkey symbolized peace. And we can see this in 1 Kings 1.33, when Solomon rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus was also deliberately fulfilling some Old Testament prophecies, particularly Zechariah 9.9. And in Zechariah, Zechariah speaks, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when Jesus rode in on the donkey, there was no doubt to all those present that he was proclaiming himself to be king, the Messiah in the line of David, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he was coming in peace. Now, another leader had done something similar a couple centuries before. His name was Simon Maccabeus, and he's, he had defeated the Greeks. And he rode into Jerusalem. The crowds had hailed him. They'd thrown branches on the ground. His horse had walked over them. And then he'd entered into the temple and cleansed it. And Jesus is coming in like Simon Maccabeus. And when people see him, they recognize him like they did for Simon. They throw their cloaks on the ground. There are their branches on the ground. And then like they did for King Jehu 900 years before, they throw their cloaks on the ground. They, and then they recite a psalm. They recite two verses from Psalm 118. And this is a phrase modern interpreters say is close to, hail to the queen. And they shout, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as he comes in, the crowds recognize that Jesus is king, king in the line of David, the great king. And they call out to him to save them, which is an appropriate cry to make to the son of God. True worshipers who recognize who Jesus is will call on him to be saved, and Jesus is meant to be welcomed and worshiped. That is who Jesus is. But the parable that Jesus is enacting is not quite done. 
And so he keeps on riding, and he rides into Jerusalem, and he rides and walks right into the temple. And from a political perspective, the temple is the place of power, the place of power of those who have strongly opposed Jesus. But from a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, it's the building identified most closely with the, with the presence of God, the glory of God. And when Jesus walks into the temple to proclaim his kingship, and that it seems like in the way royal parades work, he should expect to be coronated. So he goes into the temple and nothing happens. Mark records this starkly in verse 11 and says that it's late. Jesus went in, he looked around, it was late, and then he went back to Bethany. This is the ultimate insult. The king of kings, the creator of the universe, enters into the temple, the dwelling place of God, and nothing happens. He gets there too late, and the party's over. Now, this isn't poor planning on Jesus' part. He didn't, like, have a long brunch and just get away a little too late. He planned it. He planned for this to happen. And so he wasn't surprised. And he does this to demonstrate the truth that the true king of Israel has arrived and the people in power do not receive him as king. In the last few years, a provocative meme has gone around the internet and it's uh, been tied to anti-colonialism. And it, it frames Jesus as a helpless, marginalized person who's executed by Roman colonizers. Another a brown man crushed by power. Now, Jesus does understand what it's like to be marginalized and crushed. And although this is what the Roman uh, leaders and the Jewish leaders thought they were doing, they thought they were crushing Jesus who stood in their way, this is not how the gospel writers portray Jesus. And they portray Jesus at the end as purposefully antagonizing the powers in order to bring about the events that happened. And so Jesus was king. But he submits to the corrupt leaders of his day in, over, in order to overturn corruption, in order to provide a way to God for the whole world, in order to some, start something new in the world. And so this is what Jesus is doing as he arrives at the temple. He's antagonizing the leaders. He, he heads back to Bethany, likely to Mary and Martha's house for a good sleep. And then the next morning, Jesus gets up, and he returns to Jerusalem. There's no fanfare, there's no crowds, there's no shouts of Hosanna, and he heads back to the temple. So I'm going to read those verses now. And they came to Jerusalem, and this is starting in verse 15, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So remember, right now it's Passover time. Faithful Jews from all over the Roman Empire are coming to the temple to worship. And literally hundreds of thousands of people will arrive. In the, the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote in AD 67 that at, at that Passover, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed. And think of that as one lamb per person. 
So the temple would have been packed. They would have come with their foreign currency and they would need to exchange it for Jewish currency in order to pay the temple tax. They also needed to buy animals and salt and wine for their offerings. And all this took place where Jesus was standing in the outer courts, also known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place that foreigners or non-Jews could worship. And this was the hub of the business that was required for the sacrificial system. So it's noisy, it's crowded, and now at the most important moment in the Jewish calendar, the focus seems to be somehow off. So when Jesus enters the temple and observes all this activity, he's greatly distressed by what he sees. And he begins to speak and to act, not as the gentle and humble king of yesterday, but as a judge. And he begins to eject people who are buying and selling. He flips over tables, he throws chairs, and he even forbids people to carry anything in the temple. And what Jesus does is he literally shuts down all the activity in the temple. He stops all the things that are supposed to be happening at Passover for maybe 20 or 30 minutes. Now, I'm sure this was confusing to the people who are present. Like, what is Jesus doing? And it's actually hard for us to understand as well. What's the, important, what's the point of doing something like this if it's so short-lived? He just stops things for 20 minutes. So I want you to think about the old-growth logging protesters in B.C., they passionately believe in what they're doing. They are willing to be maligned, arrested, and they even risk their lives sometimes. So recently they've started to disrupt, disrupt traffic on Highway 1, even to super glue themselves to the highway. Now, I don't know about you, but this is pretty frustrating. I've been stuck in the traffic, and it appears to have no lasting impact. A couple hours, traffic is shut down. But it's a symbolic protest. They're trying to make us uncomfortable. They're trying to say, pay attention. Something bad is happening. And this is the kind of protest that Jesus is doing in the temple. It's symbolic. It's disruptive. And it's pointing to a serious problem. As Jesus makes his protest, he explains why he is protesting. Now, we don't have all that Jesus said, but we have a couple of snippets. And those two snippets are lines from two Old Testament prophets. One is Isaiah, and the other is Jeremiah. And so let's look at those passages to try and understand what Jesus was protesting. First, Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer from all nations. This comes from Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And it's a passage about the welcome of foreigners who worship God. And so foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And this welcome for foreigners was not a new proclamation by Isaiah, but it was declared when the first temple was dedicated by Solomon in 1 Kings 8. And so Solomon reminds, prays to God and then reminds the people that this temple was not just for the Jews, but it was also so that people from all over the earth would come to know um, God. 
And the temple in Isaiah's day was not serving its purpose. And likewise, in Jesus' day, it was not serving its purpose. It was not a house of prayer for all nations. And then Jesus says that it's also a den of robbers. And this comes from Jeremiah 7, 6 to 7. And hundreds of years before, Jeremiah is standing in front of the temple gates, and he's pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel. And he says, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in this land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And with this, Jeremiah announces that the temple of Solomon will be destroyed and the nation of Israel will fall because of its wickedness and go into exile. And now here is Jesus standing in the second temple. He's saying the same words to the Jewish people of his day. This temple is closed down because of your unfaithfulness. Now, scholars have debated and are still debating what Jesus was protesting. What was he upset about that was happening in the temple? Some people believe it was the business that was happening inside. Some people believe it was the exploitation of the poor when they came and participated in the money exchange process. Others think it was a judgment on the uselessness of the sacrificial system and some say the temple was meant to be a place where foreigners, the needy, and the vulnerable could come and find God. And set, instead, they were pushed out into these busy outer courts, and they, there was no place for them to pray. Well, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright remarks that when Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers, he's not referring to a place where criminal activity takes place. A den is the place where criminals go to hide after they commit their crimes. And so he thinks that it's more about what the religious leaders were doing outside the temple that was the issue. They were doing things that hurt other people. And then they'd go into the temple and they thought they were safe there. They, they thought, so they thought, that they were saved by God because of the sacrificial system. And so maybe Jesus was condemning them for failing to uphold God's commands for justice. And perhaps all these things had set Jesus off on this day. I think there's a clue to the purpose of this enacted parable again um, in what is happening just before Jesus ent enters the temple and just after and so if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark 11, verses 12 to 14. And in verses 12 to 14, Jesus comes across a fig tree. And this fig tree should be bearing fruit, but it's not. And so Jesus pronounces judgment on the tree. Now, this judgment of Jesus on the tree bothers a lot of people, but it can be explained in this way. So it's in the context. So if you... If you um, Look, so in verses 12 to 14, Jesus encounters the fruit, fruitless fig tree, and he says, may no one ever eat from this fruit again. And then in verses 15 to 19, Jesus enters the temple and stops all the activity. And then finally, in verses 20 to 21, the disciples and Jesus come by, and they see the fig tree the next day, and it has withered. And so this is called, this literary style is called a Markin sandwich. So Mark uses this often, and you can see the yellow, that's the bread, 
and the whites in between. <laughs> and so and what the Markin sandwich does is it helps us to understand what's happening in the middle. And so in the Old Testament, a fig tree was a metaphor for Israel, and it was a metaphor for the spiritual life of Israel. The fig tree that Jesus sees is supposed to be providing fruit in the spring. And in the spring, figs produce little nodules. And so I think I have a picture of that. Um, I have a tree in my backyard, if you can turn to the nodules. And there's a, just as a leaf, are coming, leaf is coming out, you can see that teeny little fig. And so the tree that Jesus came upon did not have these figs. It wasn't doing the job it was supposed to do. It was not functioning in the way it was created to function. And the temple is like the fig tree. The temple was meant to produce fruit. It was meant to bring life. It was meant to feed people spiritually. But it was not functioning in the way it should. And so it must be closed down. And so I believe that Jesus is denouncing the scribes and the priests' corruption, their treatment of foreigners, this focus on the outward appearance of religion, and the temple was their den, their power base. It wasn't functioning as it was supposed to. It wasn't showing the world the goodness of God. So the leaders of Israel, they haven't prioritized hard obedience to God. They haven't loved their neighbors as themselves. They haven't welcomed the foreigner. And the priests have allowed the temple to be a place where Jewish people thought they could find forgiveness and connection with God without changing the way that they acted on the outside. Now, the priests and Pharisees saw uh, and understood Jesus' temple shutdown. They knew what he was doing. They knew he was pronouncing judgment on the temple and on them. And so they, in turn, looked for a way to destroy Jesus. And the temple pro- this temple protest is a pivotal moment in Jesus' fate. This was Jesus' choice. He chose to antagonize the religious leaders of his day. So how do we make sense of these two back-to-back stories in Mark's gospel? I think first, they reveal to us who Jesus is. Jesus is king. He's both humble and gentle, and he's full of fire, fighting for justice. And so what does that mean for us today? First, as we reflect on Jesus' royal entry into Jerusalem, it reminds us of who is on the throne, who is king, who, and what is that king like? And so Jesus is God in human flesh, and he is on the throne, and he comes in peace. And he comes in order for us to know him, and he wants to command our respect, our honor, our worship. He comes in and invites us to align our lives with his. It is only King Jesus who saves. Our religious system will not save us. Our good works will not save us. The follower of Jesus, Paul, writes in the New Testament book of Philippians. Um, And it's interesting that Brad prayed from this this morning. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we have a choice of how we can respond to Jesus. We can worship Jesus or we can resist Jesus. As Tim Keller says, we can join with those who want to crown him or we can join with those who want to kill him. 
And so maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure if Jesus is king. I want to encourage you to keep exploring. Open your heart and ask Jesus if he is real. And you're, feel free to ask questions of the people you came with or of Brad or myself after the service. If you're here and you've already decided that Jesus is king and, you, and you've called on him to save you, we can rest in the truth that we are not in charge and that we don't have to save ourselves. The decision to worship Jesus, to receive Jesus' salvation, um, is meant to impact every area of our life. Not only can we experience safety and peace in Jesus, but in Jesus, our passions can be stirred up, our passions for justice. And relationship with Jesus is meant to transform us into a more whole and more complete person. It will change the way we use power, It will change the way we welcome people, the way we care for the foreigner, the vulnerable. And we, as the people of Jesus, are called to bear fruit. So it's important to remember, again, these good works do not save us. But when we are saved by the king, we are invited to join with the work that God is doing. We're invited to be involved in God's good work of establishing his kingdom, of establishing justice in the world. And this is not just our work as individuals, but it's our work as a church community. And so when the Bible talks about justice, it imagines a place where all people are flourishing, when people look after one another. No racism, no hatred, no exploitation, no hunger. And when, where there is, the earth is healthy and where humanity is looking after creation. That's what justice means. And failure to act justly greatly impacted the people of God in the time of Jeremiah, in the time of Jesus, and it will greatly impact us if we fail to act justly. And establishing justice is costly. And think back again to those who fought against race-based slavery. That was a, a difficult cause to fight against. And now think about the old growth forest protesters. They're radical in their pursuit of justice for the forests. And this stands in contrast to many of us. Uh, what are we willing to do to seek justice? Often we don't want to be uncomfortable. And in our city and in our country, there are places of political power, our version of the temple, that need to be challenged and warned. So I can think of one. One of my friends has brought this to my attention. And this is the issue of slave labor. Did you know that the Canadian government allows goods made by slave labor to come into Canada to be bought? So for example, it's recently been exposed that canned tomato products by Del Monte and Unilever have used tomatoes grown by slave labor in China by the Uyghurs. It's also well known that most non-fair trade chocolate is produced by children forced into slave labor in Africa. And there are some private members' bills before Parliament right now trying to make corporations responsible to ensure their supply chain is free of forced labor. So what can we as the people of God do to ensure that, again, Canadians aren't, aren't facilitating slave labor around the world? World Vision has a petition you can sign. You can write to your member of parliament. My friend who told me about this, make sure she doesn't buy any products bought by slave labor, which is actually really difficult to do. So what are the issues God is calling us to as a community to address here in Coquitlam and beyond? And I know some of you help at the food pantry at Mariner Campus, which is addressing the injustice of food insecurity 
um, for new and marginalized Canadians. This is an area that we know God has called us to. There are also people on our streets where we live, in our workplace, even here now in our church, who are in need. We can't do everything, we can't fix the world, but we can join with God in the work he is already doing to bring his kingdom of justice. Let's pray. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus, we thank you that you are king and that you come in peace, that you welcome us into friendship with you and you give us this chance to work alongside you in your work of justice. God, stir up our passion, stir up our hearts for those in need around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.